It's time to decide. You must choose your subscription box. Do you want fluffy, fuzzy things? Do you want a watch that you'll barely even wear? How about more collectibles to fill the shelves in your room? No! You don't want that. You want horror movies, and you want them on DVD. No, you want them on Blu-ray. Well, buddy, it must be an omen, because here I am, and here's HorrorPack.com. Join HorrorPack.com for $19.99 a month and get three killer DVD movies plus one exclusive. Or join up for $24.99 a month and get three Blu-ray blood soakers and an exclusive each month. There, now you've made up your mind. Or I have. HorrorPack.com for the best scare anywhere. Welcome back to another Achieving Reality Film School. This week is part two of the Scott Bradley interviews. Scott Bradley is an author and a podcaster, a lover of metal and horror. And you can find his podcast at hellbentforhorror.com. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode of Achieving Reality Film School. for another Team Rally the Podcast interview at the Women in Horror Film Fest. Uh, right now, we are with S.A. Bradley. As it says on his card, he's a podcaster, author, and speaker. I would hope so, <laughs> since you're podcasting. Right. Uh, his podcast is Hellbent for Horror, and you can find it on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher. Just about anywhere that you... And more. Yeah. So We haven't made it to Stitcher make yet. Make up to look up and more. Yeah, Anne Moore's, uh, Julianne Moore's. Uh, I'm worried about Anne Moore because I get a lot of hits from places I don't know where they're coming from. And uh, <laughs> Oh, that's crazy. One of those, like, F- .fm or something. Yeah, there's a .fm. Uh, there's Squadcast is a .fm. Uh, there's a lot of places that are out there. I, I, I go any ship in a storm as far as, or any port in a storm that is. Well, I can always tell when a news service has found our feed. Because we'll get 300 hits from one location in a day, and they'll be like five seconds apart. <laughs> right. It's like, oh, somebody must be caching. Right. Yeah, we're huge in uh, Sweden. I have those kind of things, too. Yeah, they, they love our music. There's at least two people in New Zealand that dig me. <laughs> well, what's funny is we, we do a music bed that runs under the podcast, and every year we'll release 10 songs that we'll use, and we'll release it as a soundtrack. Oh, wow. But we just released the individual songs, and if you want to listen to it, you can listen to it or download it or whatever. But those are the, we have people in Sweden. Those are the only files they ever download from our site. So they must be taking them and turning them into electronic music or something. Perhaps, perhaps. Are, are either of you the musicians? or We use a generative music player. Ah, okay. We use a mad player from the 90s. Oh, wow. <laughs> That's pretty cool. And then I take each individual track, and I'll mix it and audition and... Add a little flourish here, or cut some piece of it that doesn't seem to work. That's pretty cool. That's but writing, no. 
<laughs> I just choose the sound that sounded best out of the options it gave me. That sounds pretty cool to me. That's more than I can do. I have to ask people to help me do all of that stuff. So you can also find him on uh, hellbentforhorror.com as well. Yep. And uh, if you're looking for me on uh, Facebook, it's uh, facebook.com forward slash hellbentforhorror. And it's only hellbenthorror on Twitter. For some, believe it or not, hellbent for horror was taken, and I don't know who's got it. It's, it's probably some metal dude. or No, yeah. it, it's, uh, it's Judas Priest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. That's well, Will Ferrell's actual account. <laughs> well, that's what's funny. Uh, I'm glad you got that. Most people get it if they listen to Hellbent for Horror. They're like, oh, is that like Hellbent for Leather? I said, yes, it's exactly Hellbent for Leather. And a lot of my shows are named after songs. Like I have uh, uh, one that I did about uh, mortality and death, and it was Killed by Death. Is a Motorhead song. And so I, I do that a lot. A lot of Warren Zevon songs end up making it on their Excitable Boy and things like that. As I think there's a, there is like a Venn diagram <laughs> that there is of uh, heavy metal fans and hardcore horror fans and people who are into like things like kink and stuff like that where it all kind of blends together in this one small spot. And everybody kind of they all shop at the same stores. They all shop in the same stores. They all wear black, (laughs) so it works. It works perfectly. Yes, we're we're all looking for the slimming joys of black. And I think it's fun to do that and realize how many people get it, knowingly get it. And they're like, I I get your literary references and I get your music references, which is really kind of cool. It makes it easier too. That's funny that you said that because we weirdly enough do a lot of '60s references and '70s references. Depends on what we were watching that week. You know? <laughs> yeah, and uh, so I've been real into laughing. Oh, yeah. I used to love it when I was young, and now that I have Netflix. Sock it to me? That, yeah. No, that's not the one he's been using lately. No, no. Well, I'm, I just started it, and it's that. Uh, look that up in your Funkin' Wagnalls. Yes. Because we've been, we've been making a lot of things. Because it I'm sounds like, dirty. I'm like, yeah, it exactly. does. But I've been like, yeah, Google that for all you you know, millennials and younger out there. That, that, you know. Yeah, what's a funkin' wagon? It so, is dirty. <laughs> yeah, put that up your funkin' wagon. Especially if you're Artie Johnson, you can say anything, it sounds dirty. Yeah. Banana. Yeah, yeah. Are you embarrassed easily? The words like this embarrass you. Grunties. <laughs> so, yeah, we, we've been doing that. We do that a lot. And unless you're our age or older, most people aren't going to get a lot of the references that yeah. we make. We've made multiple Fatty Arbuckle references on the show, so it's wow, that's <laughs> really yeah, so it's yeah, not yeah. feudalism jokes. <laughs> well, the goal is that unless you're oh, Dennis, that young. we want something to go over your head unless you're Dennis Miller. That's that's the got goal. It, yeah. Got it. <laughs> so uh, we're hoping that he downloads the show and listens to it. <laughs> Gets it. I doubt it. And then references on our show. Uh, great. What's even better though is we're actually fairly big in North Korea and China. Not, great. No, we've had a no, couple hits from North Korea. Korea. Well, that's a lot for that. Right, yeah. Well, we figured that's just somebody in the censor bureau going like, oh, definitely not. <laughs> could be, could be. I'll give them three episodes, and if I don't hear something pro-communist, I'm shutting this off. Yeah. Well, the one that they got was uh, the, the... The hour and a half we spent making fun of North Korea. <laughs> yeah, that's... Oh, nice. Up on, that's how it happens, No, we were right? reading some kind of news article about, um, what was it called? Ken John Il's Miraculous New Hooch. It's supposed to be alcohol that doesn't give you a hangover. <laughs> nice. But we found a gift shop. It was an online gift shop. I don't know if somebody was running it as a joke site, but it seemed legitimate enough that you could order North Korea merchandise. And it was like beer koozies with the North Korean flag on it. 
And we were just hoping it was that. we were just hoping it was real. I would too. I mean, that's the kind of problem that I would find. I'd be on some kind of no-fly list because I would love to buy something like that just to say that I've I I've been did wanting it. to get, yeah. his, get his book. He wrote a book on filmmaking. Oh, boy. I just want to read it. What is so it about dictators in film? I mean, that's Stalin that's the was... the easiest way to get to... Stalin, yep. Jim John Hill, Jerry Lewis. Yeah. <laughs> Jerry Lewis. Lewis. <laughs> Another dictator, one of the great dictators. <laughs> well, you know what he invented. Yeah, the video, video review. assist. Yeah, video oh, assist. Yeah, I'm going to say really bad sarcasm or you heard French the story about um, Martin Scorsese on the set of um, King of Comedy. King of Comedy. What, he, what was he, the story? Jerry Lewis was arguing with him about some setup that he was doing, and Scorsese reached into the the pocket of his director's chair, pulled out Jerry Lewis's book on filmmaking, and said, "I learned it from you." <laughs> and basically stop. I was just going to say exactly. It's the anti-drug commercial of film. That's great. I learned it from you. But yeah, that whole dicta. I loved when I was in like film history class, and they were talking about Stalin because you have this first wave of filmmaking. He was a huge film fan, and uh, the thing was, he, he would allow any kind of movie to be made as long as it was obviously going to be a communist, uh, pro-communist film, and that the main character looked like Joe Stalin. <laughs> <laughs> so we had all these movies with these guys that looked like Joe Stalin. I said, you should have had like a Robert Altman ensemble where there's like 14 Joe Stalins all talking to each other. That'd be a Monty Python. Song. Yeah, exactly. Right, so you've done a lot of these conventions. Yes. This one is based around women in horror. Mm, sure. So I wanted to ask you because you have an extensive horror knowledge. So we're watching the movie, uh, the Baca movies yesterday. The one you did the Q&A for. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I noticed that the women filmmakers will not shy away from unresolved endings. Yes. Whereas, you know, in the traditional male horror movies, you have a climax and then you may have a callback, you know, the killer Mm -hmm. jumps out again. Right. Where it's technically unresolved, but you still had the climax. And a lot of the ones I was seeing yesterday, it leaves it Mm -hmm. as a kind of a lingering thing. Yeah. Which there's something about me that I can't grasp a hold of it. There's the answer right there, right? Yeah. It's a, it's a difference of perspective. Uh, I, I talk about the Babadook a lot in that because the Babadook does something absolutely remarkable. And I think, you know, I don't want to make any generalizations. Obviously, right. all women don't make unresolved films and all men don't or anything like that. But I think there's a proclivity in the focus, the filter that you wish to tell your story in that is akin to something a little bit different. The Babadook does something that I've never seen in a horror film before, and that's the end. So you have this whole movie. Spoilers. Which is, uh, oh, yeah, spoilers. So if you haven't seen The Babadook, please uh, take one. two hours and go see it and then come back to this. But there, uh, oh, wait, yeah, we'll be there, here. Yeah, we'll be here. <laughs> out Just in the ethers. Out in the ethers. But that movie has this creature, right? It's uh, basically a curse that you would see in any film. It could be a ghost of any type in any film made by any gender. Uh, and it's all about the bad thought, right? Once you have this bad thought in your head. Catholicism. Yeah. yeah, right. So you have... It's Jewish. <laughs> so you have uh, this thing that has to be resolved, right? You've got this monster that is in... Uh, people who are involved with it, this woman and this kid are in jeopardy over this thing. And so normally, in a movie like that, there's only a couple things that happen. The Babadook kills you, and that's an ending, or you find a way, the curse is lifted, 
and it goes away, or you kill the Babadook. Those are really the three resolutions. We have a problem, we have a conflict, now we're in conflict resolution. Conflict resolution is we're going to end this thing because we have this big bad, and nobody wants to go home with the big bad. Well, the Babadook does something completely different. It says, we're going to find a compromise, we're going to live together. That's amazing. I had never seen that in a film before. And that is an unresolved end, but it is an end that speaks to how people have to live their lives, especially women. Now, when you watch The Babadook, a lot of people will go, you know, I love the movie, but fuck that kid. I'm so tired. Too much of that kid. Holy shit, that kid. And it's like, well, that's the point. She doesn't get to leave ever. Yeah? Men leave, right? Yeah. She's stuck. So you're going to sit in this. And I love that. And it's also the idea that a woman filmmaker can get away with a little bit more with a unsympathetic woman lead character than if a guy was to write it we we wouldn't write it you know we'd give her some we'd give her an out but jennifer kent doesn't give an out she says it's absolutely not women aren't always going to love their kids right they may not kill them but they're not always going to love them and that's anathema that goes against what we think of in storytelling. Yes, but coming from a female filmmaker, it has more honesty yes. than a male filmmaker trying to write that part. Right. I mean, it there's just certain things. It comes off disingenuous a bit because you're never going to be in that situation. You're never going to be a woman yeah. with a child. Well, what initially got me into uh, watching women horror films, you know, like this is relatively new. It's less than 20 years of me going, wow, like I'm wearing a Catherine Bigelow shirt now. So I've loved movies that have been made by uh, horror directors who are women. This is Near Dark that I'm talking about, which is a masterpiece. But I wasn't searching out women filmmakers. Just they would fall into my, my, my filter. But I went to a horror festival uh, up in Sacramento, California, and they had a, 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 it was a convention with a film festival attached to it. And so it was all these indie films. And there was this group called the Chainsaw Mafia that was there. The Chainsaw Mafia was all women filmmakers. Shannon Lark, Heidi Honeycutt, Stacey Pippi, and a few others. And they ended up being people who created the Viscera Film Festival, which is now the Etheria Film Festival that's in uh, L.A. So I'm watching these movies, and I'm bored shitless. It's during the beginnings of torture porn becoming right, oversaturated. Right, right. So it's like every movie for a while is just chair porn. Somebody's tied to a chair, and they're getting the shit killed out of them. Hostile knockoff. Yeah, right. And without any of the wit that I believe that Hostel really has. But uh, the, the whole thing is I'm bored, senseless. I'm watching one after another. Nothing is an original. And then this movie comes up that says Chainsaw Mafia. It's the first Chainsaw Mafia movie that I see. And it's directed by a woman named Heidi Honeycutt, and it's called Wretched. And of all things, one of the stars in it is Joe Bob Briggs. No. And uh, it's set in a restaurant. And it's Joe Bob, and the character that he's playing, and her, his wife. And it's this tense argument in public of a husband just dressing down his wife. And she's looking at him with these pleading eyes, but she says nothing. She's just eating and just eating, just eating. And the camera keeps getting closer and closer to her teeth. Just vi- All the violence is in how she's eating the food, how she's tearing the chicken apart. And he's just saying this stuff. She's going, do you think I'm fat? Are you saying that? He goes, no, what the fuck? And they're just having this argument where he's belittling her. You can tell that in this relationship, he is the dominant one, and he doesn't think much of her. So she says, I have to go to the bathroom. He's like, fine. And she drinks some water. She goes in, and it becomes a narration. 
and there's almost like a spy cam at the very top of the bathroom. She walks in, and you hear her voice say, you need to have a system. The system that I have is you eat a green thing, drink water, make a layer, and then bring a brown thing. When you're doing what I do, you stop when it goes green again. She's going in there to purge. And so the monster is bulimia. And she goes back, and you're hearing her system and what she's doing and why she's doing it. And you see the point of view of the argument and why she is like she is from her side of the table. And the eating gets worse, and then she orders fries, and she's like, I can feel the fat on me. And it's like this chilling feeling. She goes in, she's vomiting again. And then finally the thing is she can't stop. She keeps going, and she's trying to stop, and she's trying to get up, and it starts to be blood. And it's spilling over on the side. She's falling, rolling on the ground, and she's trying to scream, but it's just vomit of blood coming out of her. And the door starts to open. And she's like, no, no, no. And it opens up, and there's a woman comes in looks and goes, are you okay? No blood or anything. She's had a psychotic break for a moment. She gets up, and she sits down at the table, and she says, I'm sick. I need help. The first time he's ever kind to her is then. He starts going, oh, honey, I think it's okay. It's no big deal. Maybe you just have the flu and all this. Here, you want some more to eat? You know, and he does this whole thing. He's resetting the whole thing. And you realize that this is not a moment of clarity where everything's going to get better. There's no resolution. This conversation has happened before. This resolution has happened before. He's starting it all over. She's in a ring of hell. And that's how the movie ends. And I'm like, holy shit. This is amazing. No money down. You know, this is like small filmmaking. Such an idea. I would have never thought of Bulimia as a monster. I would have never made it like that. I would have never taken that point of view. And I was repulsed. I was intrigued. And I was chilled. And I was like, sign me up. There's a whole bunch of horror that I'm not seeing because I haven't been uh, addressing this one way of looking at a story. The perspective. It's just a perspective shift. It doesn't have to be about pregnancy. It doesn't have to be about these things that we consider so female. But it is something about body horror. They're remarkably good at body horror. Remarkably good at psychological horror. It's like, bring up Dennis Miller again, it's like men are more externally driven. We are more concerned with things coming from the outside, whereas women are more internally. I when you, you look at it almost from the children gestate inside the woman, a man impregnates a woman. You know, so it's kind of a men are more concerned about external forces coming in, whereas women are more concerned about the horror coming from an internal source. Well, that's interesting. I, I think what I agree with there is the idea of an outsider. And that's that's a generalization, outs- yeah. obviously. But that outsider thing of we do fear what's out there. It's like the idea of what, what's the, what, what creates fear. Uh, I have a fear of losing what I have or not getting what I want. And that's kind of the, the, the mindset uh, that we are constantly on defense. Yeah, and from a male general standpoint, it's usually some external force that right. causes you to lose this or lose that. Right, right, exactly. And I think that that's interesting. It's kind of the old campfire idea. You know, the first story is uh, we are all tribe. Thank you, great spirit, for the food, blah, 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 whatever it might be around the fire. Mm-hmm. And then the second story is don't fucking go in the, we- in the woods. Yeah, there don't are go beyond monsters the in there. Light. Don't go behind the fire. This is where we're safe. Safe. Something's warm. out there. And I do think that that's a rather a maternal kind of, uh, or paternal, actually, uh, mindset. It's, it's a male mindset of, like, we need to guard the gates. You know? That's what I'm all about. You know, I, I was a soldier, and uh, people go, well, that warlike. I said, no, we're big on defense. <laughs> 
we're all about defense. If you saw the the security systems on my house, and you know, I live in earthquake country. I have a few earthquake bags and things like that. I'm all about protection. You know, I'm all about what's coming. Right? It's really hard to defend against earthquakes. Yeah, jump up really fast. Really fast. Yeah, and a lot. And a lot. Right. Levitate. If you can levitate, you're going to be all right. Oh, well, then you have nothing to worry about. Yeah. I can't levitate in earthquake country or outside earthquake country. <laughs> it doesn't have anything to do with location. Everybody have an just... understanding. I don't piss it off, and it doesn't piss me off. So fair enough. I don't know. Pissed you off the other day. Yeah, I apparently pissed it off. Oh, the gravity observer. That's what you yeah. call that. That was a um, reality check. You know, yeah. just so it let me know that it was still there. <laughs> you can't levitate. Thump. Right. <laughs> in case you were thinking, you look like you're about ready to take flight. Let me remind you, it's just not going to happen. Maybe. Nope. Do I have plumage? Nope. You know, it's just one of those things where you're having a good day, you're not thinking about things that are troubling, and all of a sudden life says, uh, get back to work. Yeah. What do you think you're doing? <laughs> you're supposed to be miserable. But I think that's what we're talking about. It's like that's why it comes to as kind of a shock to men when they see a there's an adjustment period where you have to think about what you're seeing. Yeah. Because it's not coming from your point of view anymore. Right. The male gaze versus the female gaze is what I've been hearing, uh, the, the term that you'll hear a lot. And I think the movie Revenge that came out last year, the year before, which is the rape-revenge film from, from a, a female gaze, which is really interesting because it's, it's as insane off-the-balls-walls movie that you would have of an action film, but you have a woman who falls off of a cliff and is impaled on a tree and lives. And it's like, she lives. And it's like, have you watched Rambo? <laughs> You watch some of these movies, what these guys get to go through and they survive and they just walk away with a limp. Yeah. So it's always been absurd. But the thing is, they're using that absurdity and now you're noticing in, in this way. Well, when they say that, just remind them, Dark Knight Rises, he's been out of business for eight years. He puts on a leg brace and kicks through a brick wall. Yeah, right. It's a good leg brace. It's a good <laughs> leg brace. But he doesn't limp again for the rest of the movie. Yeah. But yeah, going that back. that good of a leg brace. That's right. That's right. It's kind of dovetailing back to what you were talking about, the unresolved endings and what I was saying about the Babadook. It's that that is a way that, you know, women feel about things where you can have a compromise, right? Instead, of, you have to find a compromise. You can't kill and you can't leave. So you have to find a compromise to live. And I think the same thing with unresolved endings. Women, if I ask, if you go ask women, which is the best way to find out what women you know, think about horror and stuff, uh, why they're into horror, they're like, I live in a horror movie, dude. I'm a single woman living on the second floor of an apartment building downtown. So every time I get on the subway, it's a little bit of a horror movie. My pulse races. So yes, I know horror a little bit. Uh, Lugosi used to say, you know, women love horror. They're attracted to the horror. And he got it, you know, in, in his own way. And I think that that unresolved end is, hey, guess what? I don't get, you know, the thing that you get where it's, well, that's all taken care of. We just solved the war on drugs. Well, there you go. Communism is over. We're great. They don't get that. You know, they, it's, I wake up and it's still scary. You know, and so that unresolved end, I think, is very good. And it's very literary. And I think that's another thing. A lot of novels end that way. You know, movies, not so much. But a lot of horror, if you read it, especially short horror film stories, they end unresolved. They end in the middle of a sentence sometimes. And I think uh, women uh, may wish 
to be more literary at times. They may spend a little bit more time in books. I'm not sure. Don't want to make any generalizations right. on that. But I would say that you feel a little bit more of a literary uh, bend to that. So I think where uh, sometimes films can be more visual, of course. Very Lovecraftian in that, yeah. in that regards. Because although you've gotten a story, you've been told a tale, the crux of the problem is still there. Yeah. The, the problem does still exist. You just don't have a resolution for it period, and that's where the horror is supposed to come from. Yeah. Well, Paul Tremblay wrote a book called The House or The Cabin at the End of the World. I think it came out last year, the year before, and people were in a uproar because it ends unresolved. But how it ends unresolved is so like, it's like the end of The Sopranos. <laughs> it's just like the cord just gets pulled, and, and you're stuck with it. You just have to sit in what he has created. I think it's brilliant. But I can understand completely why people were upset because he makes such a, a, an end-of-the-world kind of situation. You know, everything's at stake. That you, you, How are you going to go to sleep without having some resolution? Kill me or save me, motherfucker. Don't leave me here. And, and no, he leaves you there. And that's pretty interesting horror. Neat. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just enjoying listening. Yeah. I, I, As you can tell, I could go on forever, so you have to try and corral me in. He's, that's okay. He falls asleep every single time. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> We're just watching the sound, man. He's ah. actually doing some work. The man from Reno. I was thinking of Man from the South, but what one's Man from Reno? I'm trying to think what that He's is. a girl from Ipanema, so... Wow. I wasn't thinking at all. Ah. Man from Reno. That's Maybe interesting. Have to oh, spoilers. That. <laughs> okay. Female okay. lead does it. Now it's slowly starting to be like a fog kind of lifting that it's making a little bit more of a recollection, but I don't remember it, obviously. Uh, Man from the South was Roald Dahl. That was his uh, one of his short stories, which is one of the great short stories, which is the one where guy uh, goes into a bar with his girl down south in Panama or something like that. He's an American. And there's this guy in a white suit, this elderly guy, kind of weird looking. And uh, the young punk American pulls out a lighter and he's smoking a cigarette. And the guy says, I would like to make a bet with you. Oh, it's like the end of um, Four Rooms. Yeah. Where it's like, I'm going to take your pinky or yeah. you get my Cadillac. Yeah. That was the, That's whole, a, the whole premise of that last segment of Four Rooms yeah. is that they had seen that. Yeah. And they were trying to replicate right. it. Right. Yeah. Man from the South. So that was a story in the first book I ever stole <laughs> when I was in third grade. I stole it from my elementary school library. It was Alfred Hitchcock's Spellbinders in Suspense. It was one he, of those. Alfred Hitchcock did a, well, he, he, a Hitchcock yeah, Presents. He had Alfred Hitchcock Presents. Yeah. And so he had a, a book line which is just, you know, he put his name on it, but uh, it was all of the writers. But that's where Daphne du Maurier's The Birds was uh, also published in that book. So if you read that, it's a whole different story than the movie. I think it's darker than the movie. It's, it's really disturbing. Some visual images that are really made. But I love, I think people talk about Psycho as the first modern horror film. I'm on the fence about that. I think in some ways, yes, but I think the last five minutes of Simon Oakland telling you exactly what happened and everything makes it go back into the old school of, yeah. of horror. But The Birds is modern because it tells you nothing and it ends with nothing. And it's an electronic score of bird squawks. It's like there's, it's such a 
amazing experimental film in some ways in what it does. It's so it stretches that suspense so far before it lets it snap. And even though I mean the the, the rotoscoping of the birds and everything is kind of hokey, it's still really disturbing. You know that little scene with the the farmer with his eyes poked out was right. like that scared me for a See, long time. I mean, you know, we talk about like oh, Lucas went back and, and changed his movies or whatnot. I wouldn't mind seeing somebody go back and recomposite the birds. Mm. I mean, the same performances, leave the performances as they are and try and match the look as much as possible, but go back and take out some of the, the compositing lines and things like yeah. that just to clean it up a little bit for a modern audience to give it a chance to be seen. You don't change the movie itself, but cleaning it up is fine. Right, right. Be interesting to see what that would do. I mean, even if you went back and, and shot new bird footage to put mm-hmm. in there that, that that matches enough that it doesn't change the movie, right? Just to give it a chance at a new audience. I think uh, you know the the real time will tell thing is that next generation, one or two generations from now, going to think of that decision. We're always going to sit there and go, "No, you shouldn't touch it. What are you doing touching it? Stop touching that thing." But, uh, you know, I think the problem they ran into was that they didn't make the original versions available. Like Lucas did not give you right both versions. Yeah. Well, that pisses me off. Is that what pisses people off? I mean, I would even be in favor if they wanted to go back and touch up Bruce and Jaws a little bit and make him look a little more (laughs) appealing to see. And when I watch it, I never question shark. Yeah. Because that's what a shark looked like when I was five years old. Right. And nobody's I haven't been on a boat attack to learn that. That's not what a shark looks like attacking a boat because right. I don't generally do that. <laughs> it's uncommon. For I try a shark. not to get close. I mean, strange I've, behavior I've been on that close shark. To sharks, but I try to minimize it as much as possible. <laughs> and in my head, if I see a, a real shark, the problem's with that shark. He doesn't look like Bruce. <laughs> right. The problem's not with Bruce, <laughs> but someone who didn't grow up with it. Right. It is a stumbling block. <laughs> And there it is, another Achieving Reality Film School with Scott Bradley as our guest. We hope you're really enjoying these. We have one or two more with him, and then we'll go back to some semblance of idiocy. So, for everyone here at Achieving Reality Film School, I'm Larry saying good on ya and stay tuned. Hey everybody, Larry here from Achieving Reality, the podcast. So you've missed the last few episodes, have you? 
That's cool. We got you covered now. That's right. Achieving Reality, the podcast, is now on Spotify. Nice, right? So, now you can listen to us on Podbean, Google Play, Google Podcasts, and iTunes, and Spotify. We're growing and growing. I mean, wow. Follow us on Facebook and give us a listen on all of our new platforms and our old platforms. Sit back, relax, and enjoy Achieving Reality, the podcast. See you soon.